Welcome to the Damn Strong Podcast. I'm your host, Bree, and I'm a full-time online fitness coach, and my passion is to educate women on all things fitness. I help women just like you step into the power of knowledge and commitment to ultimately live your best and strongest life. In this podcast, we'll talk about being damn strong in our body, mind, and life. I'll be teaching you how to navigate nutrition, strength training, and mindset challenges. So get ready to take some notes because we're building a damn strong life. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Bree, and this is the Damn Strong Podcast. And this is part two of debunking. Like I said, my first debunking episode, I'm going to start making this a regular thing. So if you have requests to submit to these episodes, please shoot me a DM. Actually, the first one that we're going to go over was a request. And I'm really excited for this one. Um, I think because it's a request, because I know specifically someone has interest in knowing more on this topic that they're kind of confused on. Is it a myth? What's the details of it? Um, And today I only have four topics I'm going over total just because I want to spend a lot of time on the first one. Because I I want, there's there's a a massive history with the first one and there's a lot to understand and a lot that's recently kind of been in the media and that makes it confusing. And so I'm just going to go ahead and dive in. The first one, the first myth, myth number one is aspartame is harmful. Aspartame is not harmful. And we are going to dive into that because I know a lot of people are really confused on this topic. And social media is always saying like, oh, it causes cancer. It's so bad for you. Or, you know, maybe you're drinking a Diet Coke in front of friends or family. And they're like, I would never put those chemicals in my body. And you're just like, uh, what? Maybe you're confused. Or maybe you're like, okay, I'm, I'm told that it's not bad for me. But then people make these comments or I see this online or the study came out or now they're saying this. Let's just debunk all of this. Okay. So let's first start out with what aspartame is. Aspartame is an artificial sweetener that is used in food and beverages, right? To make things sweeter. So whether that's been put in a Diet Coke or maybe like a sweet treat that you really enjoy, it is an artificial sweetener that is put in fruit and beverages. It's made up of two amino acids, and I'm gonna butcher the last amino acid, but it's made of aspartic acid and phenylaniline, aniline. Pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. I'm gonna get it wrong, but that's okay. Um, So that's at the basis of what it is. Now let's dive into this whole, it causes cancer or it's terrible for you or you're gonna die if you drink it. So recently the WHO, which is the World Health Organization, the WHO recently classified aspartame as possibly carcinogenic to humans. And a lot of people are freaking out of it saying, see, see, I told you all you guys, it's like, it's like the Spider-Man meme, you know, when they're like all holding up little handguns to each other. Like I told you, like you people drinking your diet Coke, like you're just drinking, like it's cancer in a can. And like, all it's like, whoa, 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 let's calm down. Do you under even understand that classification? So the IARC or the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the WHO has three classifications for carcinogens. Okay. There's carcinogenic to humans. That's the first classification. There's probably carcinogenic to humans and then possibly carcinogenic to humans. Okay. And let's read, I actually have it pulled up so I don't get this wrong straight from, um, I, IARC's website. Carcinogenic, carcinogenic to humans means there's sufficient evidence for cancer in humans. Okay. We have the research to support that there is, that there's evidence, not just in animals, but in humans that this can, that this can cause cancer. Okay. Probably carcinogenic to humans means limited evidence for cancer in humans, but there is some sufficient evidence in experimental animals. Okay. Pros, I'm sorry, that was probably possibly carcinogenic to humans is limited evidence in humans and less than sufficient evidence in experimental animals. Okay. So I'm gonna repeat that again. Carcinogenic, carcinogenic to humans. The first class is, Hey, we have evidence that this causes cancer. 
probably carcinogenic to humans is, hey, there's limited evidence that this causes cancer in humans, but we do have some evidence that it's causing cancer in animals. And then the third one is possibly carcinogenic to humans. And it's, we don't have any limited, I don't say any, because this is limited evidence in humans and less than sufficient evidence that even causes cancer in animals. Aspartame is in the third group of possibly carcinogenic to humans, meaning that there's limited evidence in humans and less than sufficient evidence in experimental animals that this causes cancer. Okay, so when you hear that the WHO or the IARC classifier, I guess it was technically the WHO, classified aspartamine as uh, possibly carcinogenic, you need to understand that that's a specific classification. They're not just picking the words of it's possibly, that's a specific classification they have for carcinogens, okay? Now, let's talk about what else is in the same class as aspartame, right? So this is class 2B, or again, possibly carcinogenic. Take a shot every time I say carcinogenic in this, in this podcast, okay? Aloe vera is in the same category. Coconut oil is in the same category. Asian pickled vegetables is in the same category as possibly carcinogenic to humans as aspartame. Okay, and you can look all this up. I double checked this, verified all this on the website. You can look this up today. Aloe vera leaf extract, coconut oil, and Asian, I don't know why Asian specifically, but Asian pickled vegetables are in class 2B, which is possibly carcinogenic to humans, okay? So right then and there, you can see like, oh, okay, this classification, people are freaking out about. They're saying, yes, it causes cancer when they're not understanding what this classification means, okay? Now, there's another problem with how this classification works. The classification tells us about the hazard, but nothing about the risk or dosage of aspartame or the dosage of risk of coconut oil or aloe leaf or Asian pickled vegetables. It tells us the hazard, not the risk. And that's important to know the difference between the two. A hazard is a possibility of harm and risk is the probability of harm. I'm gonna say that one more time. The hazard is the possibility of harm and probability, I'm sorry, probability. <laughs> risk is the probability of harm, possibility and probability, okay? A knife is a hazard, okay? It's a hazard. There is a possibility of being harmed by having a knife in your home. But the probability of just the knife sitting there on your counter or the risk or the, the probability of you getting harmed is low. Now, if we put that knife in the hands of a well-trained chef or put that knife in the hands of a, of a very poorly trained toddler, your risk is going to go up. A knife is a hazard. Risk is the probability of that harm happening, right? Um, bleach. Bleach is always going to be a hazard right? Because guess what? Someone always has the possibility of doing something really stupid, okay? But it's not until someone drinks the bleach that now there's a probability or now there's a risk to that person's health, right? Because they've drank it. Standing on a tall building, that's a hazard. Falling off is a risk. A container of gas is a hazard. Pouring a container of gas next to an open flame is a risk, okay? So the problem with these classifications is they tell us there's a hazard, but we don't know the risk. That's what the, the problem with these classifications are that also people are understanding is it doesn't tell us, okay, how much aspartame would you have to consume? How much coconut oil would you have to consume? How much 
Asian pickled vegetables would you have to consume? One, we don't have the data. It's in the classification of we don't have sufficient evidence. It's just the possibly carcinogenic, but we don't even have the dosage amount, right? Or we don't have the risk. We only know that aspartame is a hazard, but we don't know the risk associated with, right? So this is what then takes me to 2002. France did a study, okay? They are, there was a study done in France. Let me put it that way. There's a study done in France. I will include the PMI if you want to pull up the study in my show notes. Um, they did a study on cancer versus artificial sweetener, okay? They had 102,000 participants, and those participants provided their food and beverage consumption. I won't get into the details of like how they did it, how often, who they reported to, all that, but they provided their um, food and beverage consumption to the study, okay? They found that higher consumers had a higher risk of cancer. That's what they found at the end of their study. Okay, now you might all be saying, oh my gosh, okay, so there is a study that tells us that we, it, we can get cancer if we consume this. Higher consumers had a higher risk. Higher cons we need to define higher consumers. In the study, they found that higher consumers were, and this is specifically the, for women, if they were consuming 19 milligrams per kilogram per day for women. There's a different um, number for men, but for women, it was, if there was 19 milligrams per kilogram per day in women, they were considered um, high consumers in the study. To give you a little bit more frame of reference for that, I weigh roughly 137 pounds, which is 62 kilograms. So if we take 19 milligrams per kilogram per day, with me being 62 kilograms, I would have to consume 1,200 milligrams of aspartame every single day to be considered a high consumer in this study. I'd be like, okay, 1,200 milligrams, like what does that mean? That's six Diet Cokes. I would have to consume six Diet Cokes, not just once, not just like once a week. Every single day, I would have to consume six Diet Cokes continuously, right? And so that just gives us a much better perspective of like, okay, no one's, I mean, there, there are probably people out there who are drinking that much Coke in a day, right? Diet Coke, whatever, you know, aspartame usage is, is your pleasure, right? But if you're having a Diet Coke with your lunch every single day, you're not even considered in, you're not even close. You're six times less than the high consumer classification. So I hope this gives you a little bit of understanding of why when people say that aspartame is harmful to you or causes cancer, it's a myth. One, the classification that it's in it acknowledges it's possibly carcinogenic to humans and that classification, again, I'm going to read it off, is limited evidence in humans and less than sufficient evidence in experimental animals. And on top of that, when we have a study, again, this is one study, right? When we have a study that, can, that compares cancer and artificial sweetener, they say, yeah, it can heighten your risk. And, and I didn't even, you know, look into the study to see, you know, if you are a high consumer, what does that change? Does it, does it increase your chance of cancer by 1%, 2%? Is it, you know, massive amount? I, I didn't look into that. I'll be honest. Um, but even when we do have a study, you have to consume super crazy high amounts of aspartame for you to be even in the high consumer category. And you would have to be doing that daily, daily guys. Okay. So I hope that gives you a little more insight. If someone talks to you about it, you can bring up these things, talk to a little more educated and informed about it. Um, but yeah, the fear mongering about around aspartame is uh, really, really frustrating, um, especially because things like, you know, having diet Cokes or things that are zero in calories can be really, really helpful for people in their fat loss journey. And so it's very, very frustrating that people demonize that stuff. And, you know, at the end of the day, it just comes down to, you know, we, if 
social media overcomplicates nutrition so much for people. At the end of the day, if you are, you know, exercising regularly, eating your fruits and vegetables, you know, enjoying fun foods in moderation, you're better than 99% of the population. And that's already going to improve your health so much. So I'm going to move on from that topic, but you can see why I want to spend a lot of time was to dive into each of those things. So I think the biggest takeaways that I want you to hear is the different classifications and understanding those with the IARC, that pronounced, that's going to be the death of me, um, hazard versus risk. And then also understanding like the most recent study that came out that people are kind of freaking out over. Again, people pulled up the study and were like, well, see, like aspartame causes cancer. It's like, we've got to consider dosage, right? It's like, you know, apples, there is cyanide in apples, but you're not going to die consuming an apple because the dosage is so low that it's not going to harm you. And so dosage is a huge thing that so many people don't think about when they're talking about, you know, harmful effects of certain things, right? Okay. Next one I want to talk about is that this is a myth is that you have to take breaks after X amount of time in a deficit. So a lot of times you'll see on social media, people are like, yeah, you can't be in a deficit for more than 12 weeks. Or if you've been in a deficit for longer than this time, you have to take a break. Technically, no, you do not have to take a break after X amount of time. The reason why a lot of people talk about that is because like, oh, you've damaged your metabolism or your metabolism has downregulated so much that you're not going to lose weight after a certain amount of time. And so, you know, after three months, you, you have to be taking breaks because if you don't like one, you'll damage your metabolism or two, it's going to slow down so much that you won't be able to lose weight. That is absolutely a myth. What is true. And I could see this applying is that after a certain amount of time, people will start to experience diet fatigue. If you haven't heard that term before, that just means like psychologically, mentally, physically, like you're fatigued from being in a diet, either like you've been in, in a deficit, I keep saying diet, but you deficit, you know, you've been in a deficit for a certain amount of time and maybe your sleep's getting really, really bad. Right. And, or maybe you've been in deficit for a certain amount of time and you're tired of being in a deficit, right? You just, you're ready for some more food or psychologically, you know, you're in, you've been in a deficit for, you know, 15 weeks or something like that. And you're getting a little sloppy on your tracking. You don't want to track this. You're like, I don't need to track that. Those are all things or signs of having diet fatigue. It's just saying after a certain amount of time of, you know, striving for certain goals, specifically being in a deficit, you can get a little bit of fatigue for that. Again, whether that's physically, emotionally, psychologically, you get a little bit of fatigue. And so that's where the breaks can be really, really helpful. For me, for myself, I know right around 12 weeks, I start to get diet fatigue. And how I know that I get diet fatigue is right around, it's really like the 10 week mark, but I always say between 10 and 12 weeks, I start to not care if certain things get tracked. Like I'll put cheese on something I'm like, I don't want to track that. Or I'll put syrup on something I'm like, ah, I don't want to track that. And that's when I know that's like my symptom. I know that diet fatigue is starting to trickle in. And so that's where a break can be helpful or just ending a deficit. So breaks can be helpful. Like if you have, a, you know, a lot of weight to lose and you know, it's going to take you a year to lose the weight that you want to lose being in a deficit for a whole year. I've had clients do it who have had like 50 plus pounds to lose or, um, and they've been in deficit for a year, but a lot of my clients more often clients will be a deficit for roughly three to four months. And around that mark, they get a little bit fatigued. Things get a little bit sloppy. They're kind of wanting more food. Um, they feel effects of their deficit, things like that. Their metabolism doesn't downregulate so much that they can't be losing body fat. They're still losing body fat. They're just getting that, that fatigue. And so we'll take strategic breaks and, the amount of break time that I have my clients take really depends on the situation. Um, but I always try to recommend, recommend a third to half the amount of time you were in a deficit. So if you're in a deficit for 
um, three months, I would say at minimum, give yourself, you know, anywhere from four to six weeks of just time off uh, from being in a deficit, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be, you know what, you've been in the deficit for three months. You're going on, you're backpacking through Europe for two weeks. You give yourself a, a break while you're backpacking through Europe and you come back and you go right back to a deficit. So it's very unique, I think, to everyone how long uh, you could take a break for. But the people saying that you have to take a break after X amount of weeks or months being a deficit, that is untrue. However, there can be a benefit to taking breaks. So I just want to make sure I specified both of those. But if you if you see people online saying like, hey, after three months, your metabolism will drown, regulate so much that you're not able to lose any more body fat, that it, that's not true. So just want to clear all that up. Okay. Next myth I want to go through, the myth of you'll see people post online or coaches post online that my client was eating 800 calories when she came to me and now she's eating 2,400 calories and losing weight. That is a myth. The client did not come to you eating 800 calories and is now eating 2,400 calories and then losing weight. It's not that she's eating 2,400 calories and losing weight. That's a myth. It's that your client came to you and was eating 800 calories. That's the myth. Okay. Think about that. The client was eating, the client is losing weight on 2,400 calories, but couldn't lose weight at 800 calories. That mathematically, scientifically, physics, the law of physics does not make sense. Okay. So what really probably happened is the client was under tracking, didn't know how to track going out to eat. Maybe it wasn't tracking over the weekends and felt like they were eating 800 calories, right? Maybe they were eating you know, 1200 calories Monday through Thursday and Friday they would binge. And so it felt like they were eating 1200, 800 calories. It felt like they were low calories because they were on this hamster wheel of extremes and they were trying to eat as low calories as they could, pushing themselves and then binging on the weekends. Um, or maybe they were going out to eat and they were massively under tracking. They got a plate of enchiladas and tracked it as 400 calories. And really that plate of enchiladas was 1200 calories on its own, right? So what... I've had clients that have come to me this before and said, Hey, you know, I'm eating 800 calories and I'm just not losing weight. And I know 10 out of 10 times when a client comes to me and says they're eating 800 calories, usually it's one of two things. One, um, they're not tracking weekends Two, they're not tracking when they go out to eat. Um, or three, they don't know how to track properly. And so they're actually massively under tracking. And sometimes it's all three, right? Sometimes it's a combination of all three, but if you see a, a coach, post that their client was eating 800 calories and is now eating, you know, again, you can make it any number. It could be 2000, 2100, whatever. And now they're finally losing weight and they couldn't on these like really drastically low calories. That's a massive red flag. That just shows that the coach themselves doesn't understand how a calorie deficit really, really works. So if you're a coach and you have a client come to you and they don't have a a hypothyroid issue, something like that. And they say, Hey, I'm eating 800 calories and I can't lose weight. 10 out of 10 times, you can be sure that either they're not tracking weekends, not tracking when they go out to eat, or they just don't understand how to track properly. Maybe they're eyeballing things, they're using cups and tablespoons. And if you're someone who's not a coach and you're listening to this, you're like, but I'm eating 800 calories and I can't lose weight, you might fall in one of those things. Again, you're not tracking on the weekends, you're eyeballing things, guesstimating a lot of things, or maybe you don't know how to track them when you're going out to eat and that's what's throwing you off there. Okay, last myth that we're going to debunk is that you can only absorb 30 grams of protein at a time. I posted a reel recently of a lunch that I had, and it was 60 grams of protein. Um, And I actually had a friend text me about this because she's like, I'm confused. I thought 
that you only can absorb 30 grams of protein at a time. So why would you eat 60 grams of protein in a meal if you only can use 30 grams of protein? I was like, this is perfect. I'm putting this into the podcast. So people, this myth came from confusion. So when you eat protein, your body absorbs all of it. Whether you have hundred grams of protein in that sitting, or you have five grams of protein in that sitting, your body's going to absorb and use all of it. Okay where people get this absorption thing confused is there's something called MPS, also known as muscle protein synthesis. Okay. And we see in the literature that muscle protein synthesis, which is this process that helps to repair your muscles gets triggered when we eat roughly around 30 to 35 grams of protein. What people are getting confused with is like, oh, okay. If I trigger, if we see that MPS gets triggered at a minimum of about 30 grams of protein. I can trigger that more often. I'm triggering the process of muscle repair and recovery more often. And so what people will do is they will try to perfectly space out their protein in a day so they can trigger MPS more often. Let's say your protein goal is 120 grams of protein. Okay. And you perfectly spaced out your protein to say, Hey, I'm going to hit 30, 30, 30, right? So that would be four meals of 30 grams of protein. During, throughout the day, you are potentially triggering MPS four times versus if you had 60 grams of protein for one meal and then 60 grams of protein for a second meal, and then maybe your last meal you have any protein, you're only potentially triggering MPS twice, right? So half the amount of times that you would be if you space out your protein equally, okay? Here's the thing, okay? Lots of y'all are busy, okay? You're trying to eat your vegetables, eat your fruit, work out regularly, take the kids to school, get them in their sports, have a social life, girls night out, go on vacation. This is not something that you need to worry about, okay? We find in the literature that it is way more important to be hitting a daily protein goal than it would be to be triggering MPS X amount of time. So for example, let's just say that you did... um 30 grams of protein for three meals, right? So you did 90 grams of protein. Your goal is 120 grams of protein, but you did 90 grams of protein in a day, but you triggered NPS three times versus if you did 60 grams of protein twice, but you hit your protein goal, that's actually better. It's better that you're hitting your overall daily protein goal than under hitting your daily protein goal, but triggering NPS more often. Is everyone tracking with me, right? So the first example, you hit 90 grams of protein and trigger MPS three times. Second example, you hit 120 grams of protein, but you only trigger MPS twice, okay? We find in the literature that that an overall total consumption per day is way more important than you triggering MPS. Now, if you're someone where you're like, fitness is easy, like tracking my food is easy, hitting my protein is easy, working out is easy, like... I got everything down packed. It's it's just part of routine and second nature. Awesome. If you want to crank things up by like an extra 1%, you could decide to divide your food up. I could divide up my protein if I wanted to. I just I just don't, to be honest. I like having some meals where I don't have any protein to it. I'm eating just cookies or I'm having, um, you know, a salad without chicken in it or whatever it may be. And so I would say for most of my meals, like have protein to them, but I always like to enjoy a more sweet treat at the end of the day. And that's going to take away from me maybe hitting specifically 30 grams of protein on one of my meals. Right. So it's really a 
smaller thing. You know, if you're someone who's competing in bodybuilding, this is something that you would definitely try to, you know, bodybuilding is about the 1% things, right? The difference between first and second place in like these pro bodybuilding competitions is 1% differences. So they're going to be chasing the 1% things that can make a difference. Um, But for the average, 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 everyday people like you and me, like that's just not something I'm really, really going to worry about. I'm just going to focus on trying to get protein in every meal, hitting my daily protein goal overall, and then just move on with my life. Right guys, that is all of the debunking that we're going to do today. Again, like I said at the beginning of the episode, if you have any things you've heard online, you're like, I'm not really sure if this is true. I'm not sure if this is a myth. Like if you could just expound on this a little bit more, shoot me a DM. I would love to answer more of these and we're going to do a part three. Absolutely. Even if no one submits anything, there's plenty of stuff I see daily on social media of people that I unfortunately have to follow for my job um, of things I can talk about. So I will catch you guys on the next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the damn strong podcast. Show me some love by leaving a review and sharing a screenshot of this episode on your Instagram stories until next time. Stay strong.